Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. I'm Sam, and I'm also a vegetarian until you put a salmon bagel in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Lizzie, and this is my first shiva, so please be gentle. It's my first shiva, everybody. Sorry, sorry. It's my first shiva. That's absolutely how you should enter a shiva. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome to Subtextual, where we take a film and point out all the queer subtext you already knew was there. And there's plenty in this film, to be sure. Mm -hmm. Lots of mommy issues to unravel today. And I'm sorry, we keep trying to do something different, but we're only doing mommy issues. And yeah, that's just the way it be. The year of the the mommy issues, or the years, I guess. The years. <laughs> every single year it's going to be mommy issues. Why is it in every movie? I can't escape it. Yeah, last film, I'm pretty sure next week's film has mommy issues. I don't know, you'll have to wait and find out. But that's just who we are. It's just our personalities. And real quick, just want to give a shout out to our patrons. We really appreciate every person who's gone onto the Patreon and engaged in any way. We have a level as low as $2 a month, you guys. Um, But we also have video episodes, bonus episodes every month, quizzes, all sorts of fun shit. If that is not your bag to give us actual human dollars, um, that's totally fine. We just appreciate you for pressing play. But Shiva Baby, really good. Did you like this film? I did. The reason I'm saying it somewhat hesitantly is because what I remember of this film is like so much of baby crying. Oh, my God. And it really made me question like... I don't want to have children, but I knew in that moment that I would never have babies for certain because I would not love my baby if it cried that much. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just wouldn't. God, that baby cried a lot. Apparently, (sighs) even on set, like anytime the baby wasn't in the arms of its mother, it was crying, which ended up being good. (laughs) Yeah, they only needed the baby to cry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lee, have you seen Shiva Baby? I have. I remember when it came out on like Letterboxd because a lot of people I follow were like talking about it. And what was the buzz? Because I remember Rachel Sennett in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies because of Shiva Baby. I'm just trying to think of like, there was so much buzz, at least on Letterboxd for me. And I was uh, curious and yeah, I enjoyed it. I loved it. Yeah, this film really circulated around me for years. Like it was on, on my Letterboxd list basically from the day it came out without knowing at the time anything about Rachel Sennett or the director, Emma Seligman or anything like that. I guess it was just because it's made for me personally (laughs) that I wanted to see it. Did you find that experience the same, Sam, like that it was served to you in a bunch of different ways? I watched it initially right when it like hit years ago. So when it came up to do it for this podcast, I honestly didn't remember. So I went to revisit it and I was like, oh, it makes sense why I don't remember it because so much of it is so high intensity, high anxiety. I think I just like put it out of my mind because it was so overwhelming. But yeah, it's having like waves of popularity over the last few years. Like it'll come up again and then people will kind of, you know, and then it'll come up again. Like Letterboxd really serves it to you sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And also I think a reason it is so easy to remember is uh, the poster. Yeah. Like the first time I saw the poster, I couldn't get it out of my head. I have a photo here and I'm going to drop a photo of it in the notes and also the album cover that I think inspired the poster next to it. So you can see here, I want to show you a picture and can you describe the album for me? Yeah. So the poster for Shiva Baby is Rachel Sennett with like a dollop of whipped cream on her head and then kind of a bunch of whipped cream around her. It's got to be cream cheese. Yeah. She's holding a bagel. Yeah. So it does have to be 
cream cheese. And next to it is the album cover for Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. And it's exactly the same except for it is whipped cream and not cream (laughs) cheese. This vinyl album cover, Whipped Cream and Other Delights, I swear is a record that every single lesbian I know owns and has on their wall at some point. Lee, do you have it? Because that would make you a lesbian. Uh, I do not have it. Damn, I wish I was a lesbian right now. Because <laughs> uh, it's a good album. It's yeah, good album. they give it to you um, at Pride uh, in the goodie bags. And yeah, I, of right. course, have I've had several copies because I like to give it away. But it's the album in which the incredibly popular song, Spanish Flea, is from. It's such a funny deep cut to pull from the reference for this poster. And it also, this poster made me believe that this film was going to be like funnier and more lighthearted and sexy than it actually was. Yeah. Like you've mentioned a couple of times, like it is borderline a thriller, like a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. It is so unbelievable. Stressful. While we were watching this for the pod, Lizzie's partner came in halfway through and was like, shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> this is too stressful for me. <laughs> they Honestly. literally had to leave because it was too much. Some other reasons we are talking about this movie today on the podcast. First and foremost, the director, screenwriter, and creator Emma Seligman is gay. Um, this was based off of a thesis film that they directed when they were at NYU Tisch for their final project, I guess. I actually watched the seven-minute short film. It's just on Vimeo. You can Anyone can watch it. I'll link to it in our show notes. Um, it's only seven minutes. And it's just like a couple of key moments in the future. But she added the queer storyline nice. in the adaptation to the feature. And does it star Rachel Sennett? Because I know Rachel Sennett went to NYU. Yes, stars Rachel Sennett. Nice. I mean, you'll recognize it's just like... A couple of the more iconic scenes in the film are in the short, and it feels very similar, but definitely more elevated, better shot, better lit, funnier, more stressful, (laughs) and way more gay. Uh, I love it. And then some other reasons we're talking about this film today is one of the reasons this was so stressful for me, other than the crying baby in every other scene, is The intensity of having to hide your queer and sexual identities in your family and religious circles was so poignant for me. It like I have been in the conversations she has been in with like her parents or family friends almost to the T. Yeah, word for word. The small talk can be some of the most potent and stressful conversations you will ever have in your life. And I mean that full stop. Yeah. And the debriefing that she has to have with her parents before she steps into the situation where they're saying, okay, your story is, is that you've got interviews lined up yeah. and this, that, and the third thing. And that is so true as well. That's a perfect segue to my next point, which like throughout the film, we're going to meet at least four or five personas of Danielle's character portrayed by Rachel Sinnott throughout the film. And she's constantly having to like switch which mask she's wearing. And where she gets into trouble is whenever she's put into a situation where two of those personas are clashing. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot with the Max character and her parents or Maya and her neighbors from down the street. As a queer person going back home to a place where everyone's known you for so long, like if you weren't out or aren't out in those circles to have to revert back to the way you were and the way people knew you is, for me, one of the reasons why don't tell anyone, I hate going home for the holidays. Oh, yeah. Code switching like that is 
Uh, it just sends you back because in order to perform that, you kind of have to put yourself back where you were when you were hiding or when you were closeted or when you were, you know, a million different things that they ask you. Like, also, they comment on her weight yes. so much. And that is so true to, I mean, being a woman, everyone has to comment if you've lost weight. They ha they feel like they need to say something and they don't know how to say it. And it always just comes off really like kind of sad and like, did you not like me when I was like 10 pounds heavier? Right. Like, did you not value me until I look like Gwyneth Paltrow on food stamps? Yeah. They, they talk shit about you to you when you were a little bit heavier. So you're like, okay, well, you've affirmed all my insecurities that people don't like me if I'm just a little bit bigger. Yeah. And in this film too, in, on that specific front, regarding her weight and physical look, she is both rewarded for looking really skinny mm -hmm. and also talk down is like, wait, is something wrong? Are you not eating? Like, can you eat enough? Or people are like watching every bite she takes like, oh, look, she just ate a piece of that bagel. Like, mm -hmm. and that's a good way of looking at, I guess, the intersectionality of all the things she's dealing with. Because it's not just her image as, you know, a daughter, but it's as a queer person, as a sex worker, as a woman in society, as a person at the cusp of their career, all these different things are not up to snuff when it comes to all the people she's talking with. And this poor girl, like, I'm getting so stressed for her. But back to Emma Seligman, the director-writer, she's definitely someone to look out for. So Shiva Baby was her feature film debut, like I said, based on the short she made in college. Bottoms, which is currently out in theaters, also starring Rachel Sinnott, is her second feature. Both had high-profile festival premieres and a theatrical release, which... She directed Shiva Baby at 24. That's super fucking cool that she has this view, has this lens. Um, I'm really excited to see whatever she puts out after this. Have you seen Bottoms? Yeah, I I think I'm more impressed after seeing Shiva Baby and Bottoms so closely together because they're totally different without losing the through line of, of Emma Seligman. Like you can put them to her without them actually being similar in any way. Yeah, you can feel the influence she has on both, you know, how the characters interact, how dialogue heavy it is, but just how well crafted the dialogue is. Yeah. And just how fucking messy and stressful it all is. Like, she's not painting the perfect representation of a woman, not that that even exists, but this is a person who's figuring themselves out, who is just like a normal fucked up girl. Yeah, I think that's really the appeal of Shiva Baby and why it we see the waves of popularity because it's so refreshing to see a woman who is could be considered vapid and shallow handled with the care of like the godfather, you yes. know? It's just such a relief to watch like Frances Ha mm -hmm. and Shiva Baby and um, countless other films. So Hollywood is very quick to center so many stories around unlikable men. And I'm seeing this new turn where movies can be about unlikable women and it's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, recently we watched Riding in Cars with Boys, mm -hmm. which Bev is likable in a lot of ways, but she's also super flawed, makes a lot of mistakes, is super messy, mm -hmm. super shallow. You know, a lot of things we said about her, but she's a great protagonist and someone I relate to more than, I don't know, whatever the perfect representation of a woman is supposed to be. It's just so boring to watch, you know, a man's version of a woman. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, let's get into the plot. Hi, Daddy. Hi, sweetie. How do I look? Um, Shall we go in, everybody? Mom, who died? 
She was so she was so full of life. She yeah. lost so much weight. You think she has an eating disorder? I'm vegetarian. You look like Gwyneth Paltrow on food stamps. Oh my god. No funny business with Maya. Kids know each other. All right, so at the opening of the movie, we meet Danielle, played by Rachel Sinnott, riding a young man in a fancy New York apartment. Riding a young man sounds like she's like writing a letter to him. She's having sex with a young man. Young man? New York apartment. How would you describe this man? She's fucking some dude. (laughs) Rachel Sinnott playing Danielle is fucking some dude at the top of the film. Thank you. Uh, She calls him daddy. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I don't mean to yuck people's yum or like kink shame or something, but like how the fuck can you call someone daddy and not just think of your dad? Someone explain that to me. Okay. Oh no, this is one of those fiction. people. I have fan fiction to send you. Oh no. Just check your inbox after this. Oh my god. No. I I came around to it in this last year. <gasps> no, Lizzie. Yeah. No, stop. Not saying that I do it, but I understand. I don't. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense for you, you big old lesbian. <laughs> You're not calling your fiancé daddy anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. But why wouldn't I call her mommy? Because that's weird. Okay, well, mommy, that word is just like fuckered. We haven't come around to like, well, what about mommy uppies? Mommy uppies is uppies. different. That's for picking up your fat little cat. That's not <laughs> no. for like riding someone's ass. Like daddy is so gross. Oh, my God, Lizzie. You are upsetting people right now fucking cancel us bitch cancel her i didn't i said daddy's cool (laughs) i'm totally cool with daddy um so this tryst is interrupted by a phone call from danielle's mother asking if she's coming to the funeral and right away we are feeling stifled i i love danielle's mom played by polly draper but girl she is like call do not text me oh and your father he's an idiot he's at the gym he's supposed to be here wait are you coming can't tell me if you're coming like the woman's not even in the room, and I'm feeling suffocated by her. Oh, yeah. You know that she did, like, speed or caffeine pills in the 80s. Like, she's running at a mile a minute. I would actually have to put my phone down and not speak to my mother, like, for a while. I would put so many miles between myself and my mom if she was like that, <laughs> which I guess is what Danielle's trying to do. Because we find out that this man that she's boning on the couch is her sugar daddy, played by Danny DeFerrari. Um, she tells him that she's got a brunch planned with a client— and he asks her about law school and hands her a wad of money. Um, so, yeah, we're quickly led to realize that she is in a sugar baby, sugar daddy relationship with this guy. And that's basically the first persona we meet of her is like this driven, sex positive woman who's like got everything under control. Mm-hmm. But the way she acts with this guy is like so painful like he goes to like embrace her before she leaves and she's like literally like going boneless in his arms like trying to get as far away from him as possible it reminds me of this photo that i can't get out of my head of uh it's like john lennon's last photo shoot with yoko ono where Mm. he's like clutching her in the bathtub i want to show you this photo if you guys have not seen the classic photo it sucks that it's a classic because it's so gross but it's like yoko ono fully dressed and are they? I thought they were on a bed. You said they're in a bathtub? In my mind, they're in a bathtub, but I don't know why I think that. Or maybe they're on the ground or something. Anyways, they're like horizontal, and he is 
butt-ass naked, and he is just, like, enclosing her. She's, like, lying on her back, and he's on his side in, like, the fetal position, like, grabbing onto her. Clutching her. This is my sleep paralysis demon. Like, (laughs) this is so icky. Like, clutching his little hands around you. Yeah. Do you know how frogs have sex? Do they call each other daddy or something? (laughs) No, how do frogs have sex? Enlighten me. (sighs) I can't right now. Okay, so the the you brought it up. <laughs> no, for you saying daddy about frogs, I can't. Oh, okay. Okay, so the <laughs> Do you know frogs have sex. How I can't even. <laughs> right so the female frog is generally bigger than the male frog, and what the man will do is he'll like see the lady he wants, who like croaks loud or whatever. He'll like jump on her back and basically just hold on for dear life, and she will try to get him off any way possible by jumping, moving, getting in the water. And eventually, maybe even hours later, if he has managed to hold on, she finally assents and is like, okay, do the thing. And oh he like fertilizes her eggs. God, I didn't need to know that. Like, did you just learn that and have to say it to me? It's just what I thought about, okay? My brain just <laughs> drew these connections. I don't know why this, like, it, this isn't even, like, the main commentary of the film. But I guess it ties into, like, how the film treats Danielle in regards to her being a sex worker. It's We get to see, like, all these private experiences of her with Max on their own. As well as, like, the public judgment she's getting, particularly from Maya, who finds out later in the film that she's on this Sugar Daddy app. But um, Emma Seligman said that she pulled this storyline from her own experience of knowing a bunch of sugar babies at NYU and trying out the experience once. She said, I think it's the hardest job in the world. Pretending to be physically attracted to someone and selling that performance is so hard. I think sex workers deserve Oscars on top of, you know, rights and protection. And she's so right. And I've always thought this. I'm like, if you have the balls and whatever drive or whatever requires you to go into this kind of work, you have to be selling yourself the performance of a lifetime for Mm -hmm. some of these dudes, I bet. Mm -hmm. And I love that we have that commentary here. And that he just doesn't quite realize that she is not into him at all, at all. In the words of an incredible tweet, these men really think the strippers are in love with them. Yeah. How delusional are you? You're quite literally paying them. It's just, it would just give me the skivvies. And like, you see pretty woman and you're like, well, what if the guy I'm sleeping with is hot? It's like, that will never, ever be the case. No. No. You will never fall in love with the guy that you call daddy. I had to say it one more time just Stop. to ick Sam You're out. actually making me like recede. I'm so grossed out by that. Okay, come out come out of your shell. Come thank, on. Thank come on back. So she goes to meet up, not with a client at brunch, but her parents at a shiva. And her mom, Polly Draper, excellent actress, makes us feel so picked at. Her mom's like picking at her hair, at her own hair, at her dad. Uh, her dad is Bob from Bob's Burgers. Not literally, but in spirit. Yeah. And this is where we meet the second persona of Danielle's, like the pretty bright student with a future on the horizon when she says to her parents, like, what's my soundbite again? (laughs) And they're like, you know, you're finishing up finals and you have a few job offers. So Danielle looks across the street and sees Maya, played by Molly Gordon. Uh, Do you recognize this actress? Bitches everywhere. She's everywhere. But we were just talking about The Bear season two before rolling. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that. Mm-hmm. She's also in Book Smart. Um, she's like one of the 
supporting characters that's also going to Yale that like sends the girls on their whole island of adventure of that film. Excellent comedy actress. Yeah, I see Rachel Senek at the note of like, she's just playing herself. I'm like, this bitch is playing herself. She is exactly the same character in every movie. And she does a lot of eyebrow acting, which I love. Yeah. Um, But I want to show you a quick clip of a conversation between Danielle and her mother after seeing Maya across the street. Can I whisper something to you? Okay. No funny business with Maya. What is that supposed to mean? You know what it means. You're lucky I'm so open-minded. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I should kiss the ground you walk on for not kicking me out of the house. You're not in our house. You're just on our payroll. Can we go? Yeah, I've been waiting for you. Watch the kids. Mom, who died? I'm so sorry for your loss. So from this conversation, we figure out that... Danielle and Maya used to hook up and her mom is like, quote unquote, okay with it. And I really appreciate the lens that this film has to discuss bisexuality with and a couple of the myths that come up and like conversation key points I've heard a bajillion times. In this particular conversation, it's the whole myth of like bisexuals are sluts. Mm -hmm. They will just fuck anyone around them. They're anyone they've ever been into or will be into. They're just like hypersexual. But Emma Seligman had a pretty interesting quote in an article I read that when discussing bisexuality with family, she says, I think that with parents who just genuinely don't understand sexual fluidity, they try to pass it off as one thing that they do understand. So if promiscuity fits the bill, then they think, oh, that must be what it is. And we have a couple of friends who live in the Northeast, and something that they've all mentioned to me separately is that, like, the Northeast of the United States is known for being, like, liberally open-minded and, like, voting very liberal and having, like, the verbal ideals situated and how they feel and how people should act. But when it comes to putting things into practice, there's so many microaggressions. Like, like they can talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing that here, like, saying, like, oh, yeah, I still love my bisexual daughter, but then telling her on the side, like, don't do anything gay is, is like, the perfect example of the misunderstanding of that sexuality in this character and something I really related to. Yeah, you can tell when someone's cool with something by how often they say, you're lucky I'm cool with this. <laughs> right. It's like almost like a threat. Like, what, are you just going to choose an option to be cool with it at some point? Yeah. And the answer is yes. She's like, if you do it, I won't be cool with it. But now that you're in front of me not doing it, I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danielle immediately enters the house into what is my personal hell, which is just small talk conversation after small talk conversation for hours. People asking her like, what are you studying again? Oh, feminism? Oh, God, you're so skinny. Do you eat? Are you okay? Are you dating anyone? Why not? Like, no. The simplest questions are the hardest to answer. The way I would become a linebacker and body (laughs) these people out the front door, like, move, bitch, like, boom, boom. I don't understand how she does not physically begin running away from this. Call an Uber. I would not. I would force myself to throw up in the bathroom just to be like, oh, God, I don't feel good. I got to go. Just walk out the front door and walk around even. (laughs) I've been there. I've been in those family situations. Just get out of there. And, you know, like Maya is like able to perform so well 
in this world. And we see her like easily like sliding through the small talk conversations. No one's asking Maya about her sexuality and if she's dating any boys. And Maya's going to law school. Mm -hmm. And so she's able to just maneuver these situations a lot easier. But now that you mentioned that, like we do see Maya off on her own smoking a cigarette towards the end of the film. And that's really the only indicator we get that like maybe this is getting to her too. Yeah. If I could, I mean... I'm a lesbian. I've all, I've identified that way as long as I can remember. Like I understood that I was gay. And so much of understanding that you're a lesbian or that you're gay is like I've been performing and I'm going to have to continue to perform. And I think for Danielle's character, who is bisexual, I think that it almost feels like a betrayal of oneself partially. Whereas like, you know, Maya's character is like, this is just a character. I am just putting this on. But for Danielle, because there is some truth to it, it feels more like a lie rather than a performance because she is interested in men. She could have a boyfriend, but she also could mm. have a girlfriend, you know? Yeah. So it it doesn't feel like enough of a difference for her. Like all of her masks have a basis of like could kind of be true. Right. And her engaging with Maya, who they're they have a lot of tension, not necessarily sexual tension, but their relationship is very contentious and they're always like trying to bring each other down. But we do meet the third persona of Danielle, which like is the bitter and coolly mysterious queer girl. And at this moment over the food table, she spots Max across the house and is like, uh, what? Ew. And I'd like to show you a clip. So this is... Danielle being dragged into a conversation with Max by her parents, and we see two personas of hers collide with drastic results. You're too busy? I mean, like, with school and then doing the babysitting and everything? Oh, wow. You babysit. How often do you do that? Just, you know, whenever they need me. They don't give you a schedule? No. No schedule? No schedule, Mom. Huh. Well, do you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, depends on the kid, but it's a great way to pay the bills, so. Bills? <laughs> You've never paid a bill in your life. Well, that's, I don't, that's. <laughs> You're studying business? Uh, no, not business. No, no, she's studying gender. The business of gender. It's like um, gender business. She's a little complex when it comes to finding employment, but she's doing terrific. Well, now that you're going to be going to law school, you won't have to worry law about school. that. Where'd you, you get the idea about law school? No, no, that's Maya. Maya is going to law school. Oh. Danielle is Gender business. Yeah, Her job is gender business. Her job is gender. I love that. Do you know that I am was like one credit away from a women in, from a women in gender studies minor? Wait, what? Yeah, but I found out that it wasn't covered by my scholarship, so I couldn't get it. Damn. Um, and watching this scene, I realized how much of an idiot I am because she's not a babysitter. Oh my God, Lizzie, you I did not get that. didn't get that till like 14 minutes ago. The money is coming from her sugar daddy gig. Yep. Mm -hmm. wow. That's why whenever anyone wants to like hand her a baby, she's like, I actually don't. I, I don't. I, they must be 18 years old or older yeah. <laughs> for me to touch them. Yeah. No, I'm an idiot. But in case someone else didn't know out there, anytime she talks about her babysitting and the deposits from her babysitting... It's from her sugar daddy. Technically sugar mama because uh, after this scene, we also realize that like not only is Max fucking there, he is married to Quinn Fabre. Quinn Fabre from Glee, a.k.a. Diana Agron. 
And she rocks up to the Shiva party with a baby on her arm. Honestly, the most beautiful, perfectly dressed, immaculate entrepreneur, girl boss, businesswoman I've ever seen. And the exact opposite of Danielle in almost every way. No, it's it's insane that she is stunning. I love Dana Agron. She plays this character very well. She's like pointedly not Jewish, which they make comments about throughout, but she's converted and they're like, oh, she's only, you know. She's the Shiksa princess. Yeah, that's the word that they use. Do you know what's really funny, though, is that Diana Agron actually is Jewish. Rachel Sinnott is not. Shut up. Isn't that hilarious? Up. Oh, my God. Is Emma Seligman Jewish? (laughs) Yeah, she's Jewish. Okay. Wow, that is so funny. Yeah, but it just like... It almost made me enjoy the movie more than I'm like, okay, it's all about perception, really. Yeah. And what in that scene you just showed me, the, the character Max is putting together that obviously Danielle has lied about a number of things, but she isn't as strapped for cash, I guess, as she's led him to believe. But why the fuck should it matter to him? And he like makes weird comments about the fact that she doesn't need money throughout the film. And it's like, do you think she should just fuck you for free? Right. And also, it's not even your money because yeah. it comes out that he's basically using his wife's money. And to his pay. wife's apartment. Yes. If anything, Kim, Diana Agron, is Danielle's sugar mama. Oh, the money I would pay to see that film. That's what I literally have that in my notes. I'm like, <laughs> where is that film? And then Sam will say, I want to see that movie. <laughs> yep. So Danielle at this point is just trying to throw up any sort of distraction offense. She starts doing the thing that I do at family events whenever I don't want to be included. And that's just like offered to run like errands and like set up stuff and bring chairs and put out chips. Like I don't want to be talking to anyone, but I want to look useful yeah. and engaged. Mm-hmm. And so give me a task. Mm-hmm. Please, God, give me a task. Peeling potatoes for all <laughs> yeah. eight hours of Christmas. So at one point, she goes into the kids' room, I guess, to clean up some kids sick. And Maya offers to go with her. And both Maya's mom and Danielle's mom are like looking in on them like, oh, I hope they don't do anything gay. And they do they do what appears super gay immediately. Yeah. Like Maya notices a cut on Danielle's leg and is like, what? You're bleeding. Let me help you. Like runs a hand up her thigh. It's not sexual in the actual room, but from the outside looking in, it's that fucking bisexual myth is like, oh, these girls are just going to go get at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to show you a part of that scene. So in this scene, Danielle's mom is giving her a hard time about hanging out with Maya. Your behavior right now is completely unacceptable. Okay, I think you need to relax. Don't you tell me to relax. You are flirting with everyone. You are chugging wine. You are sitting on a table. What is this? A party? And I thought I told you no funny business with Maya. I don't know what that means. Oh, yes, you do. Don't play dumb with me. I thought you were done experimenting. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You don't know anything. You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. Welcome to another episode of Bisexual Mythbusters, where we consider, is bisexuality just a phase? Lizzie, you tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's just momentary fleeting bits of time in which you just can't help yourself. No, and like another thing I related to with this character was this particular moment because I feel as anyone who prefers one gender over another or multiple genders or whatever, like you have to be really careful in certain cases, like how you perform your sexuality. Like God forbid exploring your sexuality involves sex 
Because if you are having too much of it or not enough of it or flaunting it too much or asking for it not enough or too much, like, I feel like you get like this cried wolf persona put around mm-hmm. you is like, oh, are you, I've noticed that you, the last couple of people you've dated are guys. Like, are you sure you're done with that? Are you done with dating women? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, God, can't I just like figure out what I'm doing without having it be like one thing all the time? Yeah. You see this assumption that there is some control that bisexual people have over what gender they are interested in. And just because they like one gender and they're dating that person now doesn't mean that the other people in the world just stop existing and their sexuality like evaporates. And I think as you're saying, like some people can be liberal, but are not exactly progressive mm-hmm. and they're comfortable with being liberal and and not doing the work that it takes to actually um, try to understand other people's lives and perspectives. And also like if you're just because you're not doing the worst case scenario, which is Mm -hmm. like screaming at your daughter and throwing her out of the house doesn't mean you're actually supporting her in Mm -hmm. what her decisions are. Mm -hmm. And and you see that with this mom too. She's not a bad person. Like she obviously loves her daughter and is trying to figure out what's going on with her and to be there for her. She just like is saying all the wrong things on accident, but it's not like she doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And in the end of the day, we like the mother character and think she's a good mom. Mm -hmm. It's just like she's not privy to the perspective of Danielle. Um, so I'm going to save you from all the fuck shit that happens after this. Basically, things just get messier and messier. Kim starts figuring out that there's something going on between Danielle and Max. Oh, are they making it obvious? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're being so subtle about it. Max is a horrible liar. He is also just a shitty person. But yeah, Yeah. Danielle sends him nudes at a shiva at one point and then immediately loses her phone which maya finds Mm -hmm. and when danielle's like hey oh my god have you seen my phone i really need it maya lets on that she saw the notifications from the sugar baby app on danielle's phone and is like you know what i love your parents i wouldn't want them to know their daughter is a fucking whore oh bitch this is exactly more to your point like can you be bisexual the right way for fucking anyone the gay people are going to shame you the straight people are going to shame you like right it's not even like danielle can be open about her her dating life with men because if anyone knew it was like this kind of relationship they would absolutely judge her probably even more harshly than if they knew that she wanted to kiss girls also Mm -hmm. and kisses maya in the backyard which does happen. She at some point runs into Maya running a cigarette, uh, smoking a cigarette, and they share a kiss, which is like one of the few joyful moments of this whole thing. And you kind of see you kind of see Danielle get like boosted because before this, she tries to give Max head in the bathroom and he turns her down and then she like runs out and finds Maya. Yeah. And it's like, this will do. And, you know, gets her ego stroked a little bit. Exactly. I mean, this is also sadly super relatable, but for a lot of women, I feel like we're fucking brainwashed into thinking that our sexual power and our validity as a sexual person is tied directly to our Mm self-worth. And so Danielle's having like a shitty day. And so she starts pursuing the things that make her feel powerful. And that's trying to give Max a blowjob, finding out Maya still has feelings for her and acting on them physically. And as an audience member, we're left to figure out like how we feel about that. Like, is it deplorable? Is it relatable? Is it realistic? I think it depends on what your experience is. And there's another layer to it because Danielle is a sex worker. She knows she's good at 
you know, she knows she's good at certain things. She knows that she's desirable enough that people would even pay her to be around them. So I think she became insecure given the circumstances and was like, okay, let me, I know what I'm good at. I know what people want from me, essentially. And then someone says, no, I don't want that from you anymore. And Tinkerbell didn't get her claps or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, another fairy died that day. Mm -hmm. But honestly, like, fuck Max. Ew. Because ew. I think it's unfair. Kim, okay, so final scene of the film, pretty much. It's all come out. Kim is now very convinced that Max is having shady, funny business with Danielle. And rather than confront Max about it, she goes to Danielle and is like, hey, found your phone. Mm-hmm. And Danielle's like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, bye. And she's like, hey, can you just hold my baby for a second? Look, just for a second. Like, aren't you a babysitter? Mm-hmm. And what ensues is this really tense, scary moment where I think this baby's about to get dropped, where, like, Max comes over and tries to take the baby from Danielle, and Kim won't let him. And it all culminates in them bumping into some holy books that tumble to the ground and smash along with a vase of flowers. And everyone at the Shiva turns and looks at them. And it's just like this dead moment where Danielle is left totally isolated to clean up the mess of everything that's happening, even though I think Max should have more to blame for this issue. Like, it's not her fault that she's fucking a married man. She didn't know. I feel I can see what you're saying. I can. And I don't think that Max is not going to get it from Kim. Kim is very like, when we get home sort of vibes. She seems like an authoritarian kind of person that I I think Max knows that he's going to get, you know, get, get it when they get home. Yeah. But to Kim's point, like, I don't, it, I can understand why it seems like maybe she's taking it out on Danielle, but Danielle really instigated a lot of aggression in the first place before, before Kim even started putting two and two together. Fucking Danielle's like, I'm sorry, I don't want a girl boss. Like, oh. sounds cute for you or whatever. You know, That's true. she very quickly like minimizes Kim as an entire person. Yeah. And Kim's probably under so much stress because everyone there is calling her a whatever princess. Like, she's just trying to do everything she can. And she's, her, Max is upset that she's even there with the baby. Right. And that the baby is upset. Like, Kim can't keep everything together. And the only person who is like outwardly offending her and meaning to insult her is this like teenager. I guess like the whole situation is that like there's so much unsaid subtext and so much resentment and bitterness happening now at basically every direction from everyone Danielle is involved with sending resentment to her that it all just comes to a boiling point. And I guess Max will get it when he gets home. It doesn't really feel like they're at like end game, which I feel like if I fucking found out my partner was like sugar babying on the side with my money, oh, I would behead him in public. But anyway, so Danielle's left in like a like a kneeling in glass, like everyone is staring at her. She starts basically having a panic attack and crying. She picks up the the holy books one by one and like kisses them and sets them on the table, which for some reason that image really struck me because the only other time we see her on her knees is in front of Max trying to get that validation from him. So in this weird way, it's kind of like this atone moment. Like it's the one heartfelt thing that she's doing in the film is like even though her mom's telling her to stop, she's like taking these books one by one and kissing them and gingerly putting them back on the table. And um, 
she like just cries to her mom. I can't. I can't. Don't worry, honey. You're going to get a great job. Find a great man. Fall in love. And that just makes her cry harder. Yeah. It's like in Riding in Cars with Boys whenever whenever Faye tells Bev, like, oh, I'm pregnant too. Like, it's going to be a girl. And Bev's like, they're going to grow up to be just like us. <laughs> they just start sobbing. Right. <laughs> it's like it really can't get much worse. Um, oh, that is until her dad offers to drive everyone home in their beat up van, including Kim, Max, the screaming baby, Maya, and an old lady named Maureen. Just to top it all off, we know that even after the film's over, that Danielle still has a really stressful ride home. But at the end, don't her and Maya, like, hold hands? Yeah. The final time we see them, Maya leans over and grabs Danielle's hand, so we know that there's at least a little bit of forgiveness there, um, and they look into each other's eyes as the baby fucking just screams its head off. No peace. No peace. This woman can't have no peace. I feel so- My heart goes out to Kim. To Kim? Yes. Kim. Kim. K-I-M. Kim. Oh, I don't doubt that she will. I know you're saying that you think that they're going to stay together. Fuck no, She just doesn't seem as mad at him as she needs to be. I think that she is stunned by the situation, but you have to remember, it's still a shiva. She can't say, (laughs) stop fucking my husband in the middle of a shiva. She has more respect for the shiva than Danielle does. Oh, for sure. And she's the one that's converted. Danielle is a bad person, and that's okay. We can still like her, but she is not good. Yeah. Mom, who died? (laughs) (laughs) So on to the reception. This film, it was hard to get numbers on it because modern movies typically are hard to get numbers on. But what I did know is that it was independent as fuck. They crewed up with friends who all worked at discounted rates they were asking for the budget from friends and family. The editor was Emma's roommate. Like, this was a family <laughs> affair. And with a budget of $200,000. Whoa. Which is probably the lowest budget film we've had on the podcast. Um, it did gross around three fifty in the box office. Not true. Blair Witch is probably oh, that's cheaper true. than that. <laughs> Blair Witch budget was like $10. Yeah. And they returned all the gear that they bought with the $10. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it did make its money back in the box office and went on to streaming um, and obviously landed Emma enough clout to get a second film, Bottoms, which I also think probably has a very small budget. Yeah, all in all, very successful. I think this is an independent film that made its way through the circuit and was at least presented to everyone at some point. And it has really great reviews. Really good um, talks of bi-representation and how we finally have a flawed and realistic bisexual character in modern cinema. And I just have to agree. So with that, let's score it. Sam, how does the subtextual score work? How the subtextual score works is we rate the film on how good it is and how gay it is. And we get an average score at a 10. Hell yeah. Sam, how good is this movie on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh Despite how it made me feel, I did like this movie. (laughs) I will give it a six. A six. I thought it was really real well-crafted. I'll give it a seven and a half. Siam, how gay is this movie on a scale of one to ten? No gay sex, but a lot of queer representation. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Mm, that's a good score. I'm going to give it an eight because they kiss and maybe they fuck off screen. Oh, yeah. She says at one point, like, oh, yeah, we went to prom together. And, you know, I gave Danielle her first her first orgasm. <laughs> so there's they discuss gay sex. Yeah. 
So maybe I'll even give it a nine. Hell, I give it a nine. If the romance between the characters, Danielle and Maya, was more central to the story, maybe I'd give it more points. But I like that they are queer people and they do kiss, but it, it didn't feel like it was about like queer love or like, but good representation. All right. Shiva Baby walks away with a subtextual score of 7.5. Hey, that seems pretty spot on. Super good. Everyone, go see Bottoms. It's in theaters right now. If you want to watch Shiva Baby, it's on Canopy for streaming, maybe even HBO Max, I'm pretty sure. Great film. It will stress you out, but it's only an hour and a half. You'll get over it. (laughs) Did we ever find out who died? Uh, Whoever played cards with Bubby. Someone who knew Bubby. (laughs) Oh, good. As long as they knew Bubby. (laughs) It's your friend, uncle's aunt's cousin's second sister. You know, they played cards with Bubby. I'm honestly obsessed. Let's go get a fucking bagel. Let's go. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.